All right, our text for today is from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. And there we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Hear what the Spirit is saying through the scriptures. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So, Jules, as, uh, as we talked about before we started recording, this is, this is one of seven penitential psalms that we find. This particular psalm, the context for this psalm is David has just been confronted by Nathan. King David's been confronted by Nathan about the situation that he created with Bathsheba, namely that he saw Bathsheba on the roof and decided that he wanted her as his own. And so he set up to have her husband Uriah killed in battle and then took her as his uh, wife is the way it would say in the Bible, but we know there was much more of a violation than that and then continued to be in denial about it. And so finally, Nathan confronts him and says, dude, you really screwed up here. Like we need to deal with this. And David realizes that he's been running from what he's done from this, this terrible sin and writes, composes this particular Psalm in response, a deep, a cry of confession to God, a recognition of um, just, just how terrible what he did was. Um, and so we get this psalm, this classic psalm of confession that's really, really familiar. You, I'm, you had mentioned that you actually memorized this psalm uh, during Lent uh, a few years ago and that you still know this psalm. I I wonder about that experience of memorizing that, and I imagine you still know it. And I wonder what this psalm does for you, what it says to you, why, why meaningful enough to memorize it? Yeah, it was about 20 years ago now. It seems impossible, but that's true. And I do still have it in my heart. Um, it, what's meaningful about it for me is this wrestling that I have done, I, I don't come from a background where 
bad behavior would send me to hell, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not my motivation around being good. And I know it's not for many people and, and we've, we've gone new places with that theology. Uh, but this sense of like, it's really hard for me to apologize. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for me to say, I directly, I screwed up. I can do it internally. I'm very good at judging myself internally, but to come to someone else and say, I really made a big mistake or a series of mistakes, because there's this also this sense in me of like, I will compound my own mistake over and over and over again, right. trying to fix it or trying to cover it over. And I think David does this throughout his story, right? Like oh, yeah. all the things that happen post Bathsheba are like, whoo, he just makes the problem worse and worse and worse and worse. And so for me, having it memorized helps me to be reminded of language that isn't natural to me and gives me some words to lean on that are not, um, that are not about I'm garbage, I'm just bad, but are about, I need help. Mm. I need, and, and David does it so well. I need God's help to do differently the next time and to really look at myself honestly so that I can go to someone, a human person and say what he said. It's like, it's almost like practice. Yeah. Uh, if I can get clear with God in that way, like David does, then it makes it easier for me to practice it on the ground with human beings. And so I, I felt like that was really important for me in that season of life. And it's been a useful tool. I would encourage mm -hmm. that as a spiritual practice for anybody coming through Lent or any time of year. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's something to, um, well, I, I, I mentioned this to you that one of my seminary professors said that he wishes that confession were a sacrament in the Protestant church as mm -hmm. it is in the Catholic church, because there is something powerful about confession in maintaining healthy relationship, healthy relationship between uh, individuals and healthy, healthy relationship with God, right? I used to read this and, and because I did grow up in a tradition where I was afraid of going to hell. And I, I used to read this and I didn't like reading this Psalm because it was like, oh no, this is me. And I, if I'm afraid if I tell God my own, all of my sins, that God's just going to get really mad and send me to hell, which is not only terrible theology, but just not very logical, right? Right. Um, God knows, regardless of whether you say it out loud. Exactly. But it was, if I don't say it, then maybe he, maybe God, who was a he to me back then, um, won't, won't punish me. Won't yeah. punish me? Right. But uh, I, I was way, way off in that. And I, as I mentioned, um, also previously, um, having children helped me to appreciate this psalm. Ch having my, my theology changed and my understanding of the, 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 um, the depth of, of God's love and grace and forgiveness, that absolutely helps me to appreciate the psalm. But also having, uh, having kids, you mm. know, I, and teaching my own children 
to own your actions, to be able to, and I, I remember saying to them, you know, it's, you're so much better off if you confess, if you tell me what you did, if you don't try to lie about it or cover it up, uh, you're going to be so much better off if you do that, if you lie about it, especially if I know you did something, it's just going to break down trust. That relationship is going to be, it's going to be damaged and I'm not going to be able to trust you as much. Uh, whereas if you tell me the truth and say you're sorry and own your actions, then I can, I have the opportunity to forgive and we can work on it. And it just maintains that relationship. I, it maintains, confession creates this, um, clears this, the channel for maintaining healthy relationships. And that, that's with humanity. But I also think with, with God, the opportunity to, um, to receive that forgiveness again, right? But by offering confession, I, I, I happen to love the idea of being, um, you know, and sometimes it, we do it in the course of our liturgy on Sunday mornings, there will be a time of a prayer of confession and then a reminder by the, the liturgist that indeed you, there, there's absolution, there is forgiveness, there, the love and grace of God does block these things out and you have opportunity to always to start over again. And that nobody is exempt from that. You know, we say confession is good for the soul. That could be this whole sermon in a sentence mm -hmm. that in that liturgy, what I always love about it as somebody who usually reads it uh, and is the liturgist is that we confess together as a whole community, what we, things we've done and things we've left undone. And then the commute, I would say, or you would say as the liturgist, you are forgiven and to say it out loud. And it's so clear, you are forgiven. And in response, the community says, and you are forgiven so yeah. that no one is left out of this, this knowing of we are all very clear on what has gone wrong. And we are all very clear that we are still beloved of God. And that's, I think is so important because there's no one of us that is exempt from needing to hear that or to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and in doing that, in having that be a part of uh, the, the worship service allows us to then take that modeling and uh, take it in, into the world, the world. And to do that in relationship. It's one of the things that, um, uh, one of the ways that I knew that we could do ministry together uh, is because very early on we established uh, this is a part of our communication as a part of our relationship right from the beginning. I think the first time I was ever upset with you about something, I shared that with you yeah. and you immediately said, I'm, I'm sorry. You're right. I, I did that and I feel terrible and I hope you'll forgive me. And in that moment, this was like really early on. We hadn't even become a union church. We were just trying to figure out how to do ministry together. But I yeah. knew in that moment, I was like, okay, I can work with this person because there's opportunity for, uh, for I, I can share and this person 
will say they're so you didn't get defensive you didn't try to explain it away because uh, that would have been like oh yeah, yeah i i told her i was hurt and that was her reaction yeah, right um I think that being able to, I don't just think this, I've experienced in just our work relationship that this is, this allows for healthy relationship. It does, and, and I think it's true across the board in relationships. I know when I've, in the other work that I do, when I've gone to my supervisors and said, hey, I messed up. I, I did this this thing. It was a mistake. I'm sorry. How can I make it right? My supervisors have told me, and perhaps you've experienced this as well, Andy. That's that's why we appreciate you. Is you don't try to you don't try to hide it. You don't try to cover it. You don't try to defend it. And I, so I, I think that the the need for that is so so prevalent, and yet our tendency because we. Well, for all kinds of reasons, our tendency is to to deny, to defend, to you know, not it wasn't me. It was this person, or I I did it because this person. Right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to to blame shift. Um, yeah. That's our tendency. And I think you're right. That is our tendency, and it's something that does not show up in this psalm at all. It's one no. of the things I love about this this psalm is that David takes full responsibility for all of the things. And when we talked about the 10 commandments earlier in the year, and we, I think we talked about this story around coveting and we walked back, like how many commandments he broke just by starting with covenant. Mm -hmm. And, um, he, in this, he admits to all of it. He says, no excuses, no defensiveness and how powerful it is to receive. I, I can only imagine, I, I really want God's perspective on this Psalm and whether God would rewrite it in any way because we're doing it as human beings, but maybe God has a different perspective, but this Psalm isn't from God's perspective. This isn't God's judgment on David. This is David's judgment on David. And from that perspective, he goes whole heart into, oh my gosh, I am absolutely aware of how damaging and terrible and to the point where he expresses a sense of like, this might be a permanent stain on my life because I did something so, help me, help me he, to not let this be permanent. And he doesn't, the thing, the thing we need to remember, he's the king. Yeah. He doesn't have to. No. Like he could say, he could like, nobody's going to argue with him. If he's yeah. like, look what, well, did you see what she was wearing? Or in this case, wasn't wearing, right? Like you could blame shift and be like her fault. He could do that. And nobody would argue really because he's the king. Right. But, he's, but he's aware, he I think. Yeah, he doesn't do that. But I think he's aware as this, this person who has come to a new understanding about himself, perhaps, that his actions put in danger the soul of the nation. Yeah. And not just his personal soul, but the soul mm. of the people that he's responsible for. And wouldn't it be powerful if when we messed up, if when I messed up, and, and this isn't about I'm so bad and terrible and oh, it'll never, ooh, like it's not that. It's, wow, when I really harm people or harm myself, I am responsible 
for the reverberations through my community if I do not confess and fix it. That mm. whatever follows beyond that harms the soul of my community. And, and for David to embody that in this psalm, I think is so helpful, especially since you and I have had lots of conversations about this really problematic piece of theology that I think defines enormous swaths of Christianity. And I will argue, and I think you will probably agree with me, that it is one of the worst pieces of theology that we have ever decided universally is true. And I will just say that it isn't true. And that is original sin, mm -hmm. right? Like this, this idea, and this is where I do think David makes a mistake because there's a little bit of original sin stuff in here for him, even though he has other evidence that is mm -hmm. to the contrary, where he's like, oh, I was I was born a sinner. I was a sinner before my mother conceived me. And there's, and I start to get real uncomfortable because I'm like, wait a second. We have all of Genesis one telling us that that is not true. Our originating text is God making the world and saying, look how good it is. And then making the world and saying, look how good it is. And then making the world, which includes people and saying, this is good. And over and over again, this is good, this is good, this is good, you are good. And all of the stories that we get, like, you know, it, and I, I really, I really want us to talk about like, what does that, uh, that uh, theology of original blessing mean for confession? Like, how do we get from, oh, I'm so broken and permanently broken to wait a second, I was made good. And right. so were the people around me. Like, what do we do with that? Because I think it's really harmful. Yeah, well, and it's 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 harmful in that extending the doctrine of original sin leads us to eventually uh, the need for, uh, you know, penal substitutionary atonement oh, theory, Lord, right? right? Right, like this is where, because I am, sin I was I'm depraved from birth originally and all of humankind is Adam sinned and so all of us are therefore depraved that leads to this terrible doctrine this terrible theology around crucifixion and around the death of Christ where Jesus becomes a scapegoat for our sins and God becomes then an abusive parent who lets son, God's son, be killed. None of which is helpful. And in my mind, none of which makes sense scripturally or theologically. Yeah. But it leads to a terrible picture of God uh, and a terrible picture of humanity that is, quite frankly, just really jacks things up. And it makes for some, some really unhealthy religion and, and unhealthy some, churches. And dangerous churches. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Like if, if I, I will, you can push back on me with this, but like, I think that there is a theology of original blessing that we get in Genesis one. And then there is this moment where people use free will, do a thing, and make a mistake. They eat from the they eat from the tree, and God says, "Oh, I told you not to do that. Why did you do that?" And instead of answering with "We were curious" or 
we wanted to, but didn't talk to you about it first. What's the first action that both Adam and Eve take? They immediately turn to the other one and say, you made me do it. That one did it. And so if there is a theology of original sin, if there is any of that present, it is a theology of original blame. Like when Mm -hmm. human beings are broken, when we do something wrong, if, if they had confessed, none of the stuff that follows, I, I am positing would have happened, but they compounded the problem by blaming someone else. So if they had just said, you're right, you told us not to, and we were wrong. We messed up. Everything about getting kicked out of Eden, all the stuff that happened next would not have happened. And instead, because they blamed one another and because they didn't take responsibility, there was a whole cascading effect of other things. So maybe our original sin is that we we get defensive, we refuse to confess, and we decide to blame other people for mm. our thing that we messed up. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. It makes me think about then, then, uh, I mean, that changes Christology. That changes, that changes a lot. Um, I just invented a new theology. Did you I like just, I, I, I think it's beautiful. And, and I think that there's definitely some, some truth to that because we see it all the time. We see, I mean, I, I, the, we've known people in our lives who are not willing to confess who always blame other people for the things that they do. And we don't end up having much respect for those people. And I will say, quite frankly, oftentimes I don't want to be in relationship with those people. That's right. Because it's, I don't feel like I can be heard and I don't really want to say a whole lot. Um, And I can't really trust that person. you know so who I, I trust though, and I think hmm. this is true for you too. People who make this make mistakes over and over again, but are willing to admit it. I will put up with those people and be friends and family and in relationship with those folks mm-hmm. as long as it takes. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. Because it, it uh, that is progress. Yeah. I think in relationship is yeah. an end, and it just gives opportunity to try again just gives opportunity to try again um, and that, and to receive forgiveness again and again. Right, which is our practice, right? We confess over and over again as Christian community because we know that we're messing up. We know we're mm-hmm. finite. We know we make errors. We know that we hurt one another, but the, the, the work of forgiveness, the, the unique characteristic of Christianity is forgiveness. Yeah. And so, you know, And it's so inherent in the person of God throughout scripture, Hebrew scriptures and Christian scriptures, Mm -hmm. this idea of steadfast love. And David brings this into the Psalm over and over again, right? He says in verse one, God's eternal promises of steadfast love are what are going to allow me to continue to have this conversation Mm -hmm. with you. Oh God. And it's, it's like this moment. I, I, I think about this Psalm coming out of David's mouth or out of his pen, right? And where it just seems like he starts with that first verse and says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. And it's like he knows that what he is about to say requires him to take a really deep breath, 
and remind himself of who he is and remind himself of the promises that God has made and remind himself of how he was made so that he can like get the strength and the courage and the intestinal fortitude to do what is really hard next. And so I always look like, <gasps> okay, now I can say this. And I wonder mm -hmm. if we challenged people last week, if they were to get into conversation with people around theology, if they would first say, let may the meditations of my heart be pleasing mm -hmm. and acceptable to you, oh God. If yeah. before we got defensive or started to argue about who was right and who was wrong, if perhaps we said that first verse of Psalm 51 to ourselves, mm. it might help us to say the next right thing and do better because yeah. we're reminded of who we are and how we were made before we get into some defensive self-posturing, mm -hmm. right? No, absolutely. I love that suggestion. I love that. And again, it's the beauty of this particular Psalm right alongside Psalm 19 is this um, need for self-reflection, the need to be, um, to look internally and to realize like that, that's what David is finally doing here. So much of his energy in trying to avoid being caught and trying to avoid confessing what he'd done wrong. It's as outward frenetic energy of like, no, it's all good. It's okay. Nothing to see here. Nope. I'm fine. And finally, and, and how, how much do we end up doing that, spending our energy doing that? When, when he finally turns in and looks in, and, and realizes, oh, ooh, oh, the opportunity then to, to have that time of confession and, re and renewal and, and relief as well, because that's what comes, it, it, confession is good for the soul because there's a, there's a sense of lightness afterwards, especially if it's received well. I want to acknowledge for a second um, that it is, I would say a majority of the time, because I truly do believe that human beings are good. Ultimately, we are good. I believe that uh, from Genesis, um, most of the time we receive confession and we uh, at least acknowledge and more often I think want, we are prone to want to forgive and be in right relationship again. Um, I know that feeling of when I've confessed something to someone and said, I, I, I've done you wrong and it's received well and ugh, and there can be, you know, um, well, one time we did have hugs, <laughs> right? And receive that. But I also want to acknowledge because of a whole myriad of reasons with all different kinds of human brokenness because humans aren't perfect and we all have stories and, and, and our own traumatic experiences with um, not doing well with confession. Yeah. It's, it, confession isn't always received well. And I want to acknowledge that for some people who might be listening and saying, and might want to say, hey, look, I, I did the confession thing and it didn't turn out well. And that person still doesn't talk to me. Yep. And I, I would say there's probably more to that, but at the same time, it's not like a one-to-one um, -one exact thing. Yeah. But more often I do think that it is, it is um, 
it's a way to to stay in relationship and just stay connected. And and I I'm so glad that you said that because it it reminds me that confession is about right relationship, but it's mm-hmm. not about fixing things necessarily, mm-hmm. right? So there are moments where people need to ask for forgiveness and it is our right to not be obligated to forgive them if they haven't changed their behavior. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness isn't just about forgetting, it's about a change and an evolution in behavior. And so right. it's in some ways, confession is for the person confessing yeah. more than it is for the person who's receiving the confession and has the right mm. to say, no, thank you, or the, the right to say, yes, I forgive you. Those are two separate, those are two separate problems. Yes, that's and a very good point. So to con- David, I want, I, I want so badly for this Psalm, which is to God, to have a version that is to Bathsheba and to have a version, as you have said to me, to Uriah, who's dead, yeah. It would be a beautiful thing for us to be able to receive a trio of Psalms of confession from mm. David, because he has some other responsibilities here than to confess to God, right? Yeah. But this version, at least he gets to the point where he is honest with himself, he is trying to do something different, and he is pointing outwards and saying, I have done wrong, please help me to do better. Um, so there's a lot of versions of you know, the point of confession is not to only erase what happened in the past. Yeah, it's not a magic fix it. Yeah. It really isn't, but it is the, um, it is balm for the soul. Yes. At yeah. least for, um, well, it is for the person who's confessing. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful point. There's, even if it isn't, even if it isn't for the person who's receiving right. Yeah, because sometimes you can't confess to the person that you hurt or harmed, mm-hmm. and yet yeah. you still have to confess somehow, which is why yeah. you and I receive confessions, even though it's not a sacrament in the Protestant church. Mm-hmm. You and I both receive confessions from people in our community because, and and clergy, priests mm-hmm. have done that for millennia because it's not only about saying it to the person you harmed, it's also saying it to yourself um, and saying it out loud. I love this quote from uh, St. Peter of Damascus. He's like this 12th century saint. He's, and he just sounds so postmodern when he's uh, translated, but he says, should we fall, we should not despair. And so estrange ourselves from the Lord's love. We should not mm. despair. And so estrange ourselves from the Lord's love. Let us always be ready to make a new start. If you fall, rise up. If you fall again, rise up again. It's this process of we're learning and we're going to do better next time. If you fall, rise up. If you fall again, rise up again. Um, I love that encouragement from him because I think we all need it. There's, there's no single that will cover it all. Right. Yeah. That's a great, I think that's a great place to, to leave the conversation and move toward questions. What, what questions do we have for folks to consider uh, after this conversation about confession yeah we have three questions and I really encourage people to think about this I'll be thinking about these for myself can you think of a specific time when all you could do was rely on God's steadfast love so that you could begin again 
you maybe you couldn't confess to the person that you harmed. Maybe you were just so deep in the shame spiral that there was no way to get out, right? Yeah. Can you think of a time when you had to rely on that steadfast love in order to start again? Second one is, can you think of a time when someone confessed to you that they'd done you wrong? Much like Andy's examples that he shared with us. And how did that confession change your relationship? Did it have an impact on how you dealt with each other later? And then finally, and this is an important Lenten practice for all of us, is there something that you personally need to confess to God or to someone else in order to complete a faithful and holy Lent this year? What confessions need to get born into the world so that you can complete Lent and come into Easter with a, uh, a contrite heart, as the psalmist says? Yeah. So those are our questions. Awesome. We're going to take a moment and share as our closing prayer before the benediction, this uh, Howard Thurman prayer from uh, the work of the people. And so we'll let you take a few moments to see this, and then we'll come back and sing our way out. Lord, Lord. Open unto me. Open unto me. Light for my darkness. Open unto me. Courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me tenderness for my toughness. Open unto me love for my hates.
open unto me thyself for myself. Open unto me. I want to invite you to join in our traditional closing benediction song to sing to and with one another. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make God's face to shine upon you and be gracious, gracious, gracious to you. The Lord lift up God's countenance upon you and give you, give you, give you peace. Continue to be at peace, love you, and miss you. Go in peace.